Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. I'm your host, Whitney Baker. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give you a quick update on what all is happening right now in the Electric Ideas community that stretches beyond the podcast. As we tip into the holiday season, I know it's really common for women to feel a sense of overwhelm. Moms especially seem to put so much pressure on themselves to make the season special for everybody else. It can be really tricky to find time to take care of ourselves. That's why I'm putting some finishing touches on a December workshop called Grounded and Bright. Details to come, but it will be online on December 20th. And if you know this is something you'd like to be a part of, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Whitney Woman to make sure you see the announcement for sign up, which is coming very soon. Or you can email me at Whitney at myelectricideas.com and I'll make sure you get the details. I know we're all bombarded at this time and have information coming from a lot of different directions. So I'm totally here for you if you prefer to be contacted directly with more details about that one-off workshop. In the same vein of helping women not only shed some stress, but also just show up for that next best version of themselves, my waitlist is open for my Season to Shift Mastermind for Moms that starts on January 31st of 2024. This is my signature six-week program that I offer only two to three times a year, and you can find a link to the waitlist in the podcast show notes. So for my six-week masterminds, I very intentionally offer them during times that I think work well for moms that don't compete with holidays or spring breaks or summer travel. But when I offered my mastermind last fall, I had a few people reach out to me after the program had already started and it was too late to join. So while my next mastermind doesn't start until the end of January, I'm offering a waitlist this time. And the waitlist doesn't mean you've said 100% yes, I'm in. It just means that when the program opens up to sign up, you'll get the information directly and your spot will be saved should you decide to move forward. So even if you're just considering the mastermind, it's a good move to hop on the waitlist because it's an intentionally intimate group that I cap at nine spots. So I'm so glad you're here and connecting with me and these deep conversations on the podcast. I just like to keep everybody in the know on other ways to work with the Electric Ideas community. So on to the show. Today's guest is Deb Blum. Deb is an intentional aging mentor who has guided hundreds of women on the path to embracing their true selves and ensuring they are fully seen and acknowledged. Her passion lies in empowering women to stand tall in their brilliance, while breaking free from expectations. So Deb is the visionary behind The Whole Soul Way, an online program she designed to guide women towards living more authentically and aligned with their true selves. I think one thing that truly sets Deb apart is her focus on people doing the inner work as they age so they can grow wiser with more self-awareness and grace. I know this conversation is going to give you a lot to think on, so let's get into it. Deb, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. I am so glad to be here. I am so glad to have you. And I've actually been, I guess maybe haunted is a good word. It sounds kind of strange to start with, but I've been thinking about midlife in preparation to talk to you. The first thing that kept coming to my mind was crisis. And it's making me frustrated that our society has anchored these two words together in many people's minds. You talk a lot about how with the right guidance and tools, midlife can be seen as more of a chance for awakening. So let's start there. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) Well, first of all, let's just I think we should get clear on midlife and the time frame that midlife is, because I think we often think of midlife as 50. Like I think that's a common thing to think 50. But when you really think about midlife, Sadly, it's more like 40. It might even be a little younger than 40. And so if we keep on waiting, (laughs) we might end up in like the uh, two thirds of our life where we start to look at this. And just so we're really clear on this, that there is no time when it's too late. Like I have women in my program, they're 68 years old and they're like, I wish I knew this before, but they're just so thankful that they do know it now, you know, so What I think about midlife is that it is an opportunity. It's a time for us to be able to shift gears. And I think anybody who hits that midlife point and starts to feel some wobbles and maybe like even like something that feels like a crisis, if we can see that as an amazing chance for us to shift out of the way that we've been living into a much more empowered place, then to me... It's like a, I almost think about it like a bridge, you know, or a rite of passage rather than some negative, painful thing. Now, the catalyst can feel painful sometimes because it is a little bit of, for me in particular, I was 39 years old when I hit this point where I was in a crisis and I ended up thinking, yeah, okay, it's a midlife crisis. I can see that. But if I look back at it, it was absolutely a midlife awakening or transformation or breakthrough, whatever you want to call it. It was really an opportunity for me to change the way that I navigated my life. And I think the originator of this was Carl Jung, but I'm not 100% sure. This concept of first and second half of life living. And he says that everything before 40 is just research and that after 40 is when you really start to live. And honestly, if you think about it, maybe it's not just research, but everything before 40, a lot of it is just the things we do that we're expected to do, right? You know, we do all the things. We go to school, we go to maybe to college, or we go get a job, or we find a partner, and then we get married, and we have children, and we do the things that are expected of us. And they're not bad things. In fact, they often are the things that create a sense of stability in our life. We we maybe get a house or a, or a place that becomes a stable home for us. We have more money. We can put food on the table. You know, our basic needs are met. And I really think of that as a foundation. It's just, that's not where life ends. If we keep living that way for the rest of our lives, I think that's when life starts to feel dull and mundane and like the rat race. But if we, when we start to feel something that says, is there something more? Is this it? If instead of looking at that as a crisis, like, oh my God, this is awful. We say, holy smokes, thank God I got the chance to look and see if there was something more and see that I can build on the foundation that I've built and I can expand into all of who I'm supposed to be, not just the limited idea of what everyone else told me I was supposed to be. 
So to me, it's like, it's the magical time in our life that we can really transform. And it happens to coincide oftentimes with kids getting a little bit older, with possibly hormonal changes. There are a lot of things that are happening at that time. So often it can feel like a lot for women in particular. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I want to circle back because when my clients often are people that identify as wanting more, and I think sometimes there's a little bit of guilt, like things are pretty good. And it's almost like they've told themselves this story that they should be content. Mm -hmm. And what I always like to tell them is if you feel like there's more out there for you, it's a blessing because it means there is. You have to make the choice to go figure it out. And I think people have a lot of fear of setting the apple cart, especially at this stage in their life. Like, oh, gosh, like I'm not going to go soul searching now. So what advice would you have for that person? First of all, I just want to say I, I love the way you articulated it because it's exactly what I see with the women that I work with. There are these pieces, is some sense of guilt, this sense of like, you know, shouldn't I be just happy with my life? What's wrong with me for wanting more? There are people who have way less than me and we, we layer all this stuff. But I think that underneath that is the fear. Have you ever heard the Marion Williams saying quote, which like, you know, what you're afraid of is not your failure. It is your success. It's your power. It's your greatness. Right. And it's like, who are you to not be all of who you are supposed to be here? Right. That that's what you're supposed to do. But our world is not that way. It basically tells you to play small and to shrink and to put yourself into the box that makes other people comfortable and feel safe. So we have a lot of messaging that's there that says that. And then there's also messaging that does say, or not even just messaging, but even examples of people like who have awakenings, who they do kind of blow up their whole lives for them. And I really believe that that might be some people's paths. But I think that the women that you and I are talking to, I feel like this is the majority of people that they don't want to disrupt the life they've worked so hard to create, but they also want to be able to be their true fully expressed selves. And I 100% believe that you can have both of them. I know I'm a living example of it because I thought that I had to blow up my life when I was 39 years old. And I thought, and my crisis felt like it was an emerging divorce, but then decided to reclaim my marriage and then build up myself, bring myself into my marriage more to express myself more fully, to heal my trauma so that I could be more more whole, basically. And so because I did that, I feel like I was able to show the example of you can be your whole self in a relationship where you felt like you couldn't be your whole self and then not have to blow up your life. I 100% believe that because I see it in my clients all the time. We so often think the only way to be our true selves is to leave the places where it feels like we can't. And I say, take on the challenge of being your true self in the midst of other people who aren't supportive. It's almost like we are like waiting for people to give us permission. We want them to want us to be our true selves and give permission to be our true selves and pave the way and make it easy. Being your true self is one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life. It's crazy. Like if you think about the caterpillar, the caterpillar goes into a chrysalis and then in order to be able to emerge as a butterfly, it must go through a difficult transformation process. If it doesn't go through that and someone opens up the chrysalis, it will die. You don't need it to be made easy for you. You just need to be brave enough to step forward into it and do it. And I promise you, 
everyone around us wants it. Initially, they don't because you're disrupting the apple cart. You don't need to act that way. What are you doing doing that? You know, but once they get over their initial issues with it, like honestly, everyone wants us to be our true selves, even if it means that some friends, they might fall away. Something I've experienced, and I, I really, this is really bringing up a lot for me in terms of it being more subtle than extreme in some of these examples that we see in the world. And I think two things I want to reflect back to you are, one, when we decide to evolve to that feeling of just a deeper expression of ourselves is what I would say, I think we unlock the potential to have profoundly better relationships, friendships, you know, that sort of thing. Would you agree? Have you experienced that? A hundred percent. So really, we're doing a service to people, if you think of it that way. Totally. And then I also think that people just kind of fall off sometimes, you know, friendships do change and that happens, but I don't think it's as confrontational or as alarming as some people might make it out to be. Yes. And I also think that sometimes it's, you know, even if it did have to come from confrontation, usually we're really ready for it. But we don't have to go play out future stories of like losing friendships or anything. It's like if the friendship does fall away, it's because it was the right thing, not some usually some abrupt, dramatic thing that happens. It's because you're you're no longer a good match for one another. So I agree. But it, it's easy to go down that path. And I remember when I first started on my path, I remember saying, well, you can change so many places in my life, but don't mess with my kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't mess with me and my kids. That's the relationship you can't mess with. I think we are afraid of that. And But I, I really think we're seeing far more stories that are the, what you're talking about right now, these more subtle stories, the stories where we're taking the brave but almost private choices to be more authentic, to speak what's true for us, to open up our hearts more, to show up more vulnerably. And these things are changing our relationships drastically. I say oftentimes, like if you want an emotionally deep relationship with other people, we have to cultivate emotional depth with ourselves. Yeah. So where do we where do we begin? I mean, if people feel like they want to cultivate that spiritual and emotional depth within themselves and they feel like maybe they're coming up for air a little bit in their parenting and life journey. What could be some practical ways so people don't have that sense of like, gosh, that sounds great, but like I practically don't even know where to start? Well, I think that it's hard because we are living in a society that does teach us to look outside of ourselves. So, so often what we do is we look around and I know for me, I'll speak for myself on this. Like I genuinely believe that my husband had to change in order for me to be able to be happy and for me to be I guess I just, I, I would even say just for me to be me. And when I look back, if I were to say what was happening in that time was I was longing to be emotionally expressed. I was longing for my own emotional depth, but I had no clue how to do it. And I was actually mad at him for not being able to do it because I wanted him to draw it out of me. Like I wanted someone to be able to draw out of me that emotional depth that I was like craving. I didn't have the words for it at the time. I just knew something felt empty and wrong and missing inside of me. Like I felt like I I was saying like, who is this woman living this life? I don't know, know who I am right now. I wanted someone to be able to give me the path forward. And I really wanted it to be my husband, but we were truly the blind leading the blind because neither one of us had learned how to 
feel our feelings or to cultivate emotional depth. So I'm answering that question kind of in a circular way, because what I'm trying to say is it's okay and normal if you don't even know, there might be like an inkling of like, I want emotional depth for sure, but I think I need it from someone else. I want connection with my husband. If we want connection with our husband or with our friendships and we're longing for less superficiality and more depth, it's really a a reflection of what we're longing for inside. So if anyone thinks that they're longing longing for it externally, I promise you it's internally really that you're longing for. Let's pause there too. I feel like, cause that's a lot. Cause I want to just get into that a little bit more. Cause I agree with you. I I feel like none of this is a simple, like two-step lesson and you'll have reclaimed your, your spiritual emotional depth. I mean, I get that, but I really want to come back to that point and, and go just a little bit deeper with Sometimes I think when women are craving something and looking outside for that to be filled, it takes an empowered woman to just say, I'm going to fill that need myself. And I feel like there's practical examples, but for an example that's come up in my life, like when my husband asked me what I want to do for my birthday, I'm kindly tell him exactly what I want. I don't play the game of oh, he should know, and I hope he's, you know, or I'm going to be resentful. I know that that's kind of a trivial example, but I just was wondering if you could give us a little bit more depth on that answer in terms of like how we can start to look inside ourselves and address our own needs and kind of articulate them. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Because like in our defense, we've all been trained that like the fairy tale exists that, you know, our husband would know exactly what we want for our birthday. And then they're going to come in and they're not only going to do that, but they're going to do more and they're going to have planned, you know, they're going to like, what's the visual? Well, they're going to call us up and say, Friday morning, uh, you know, I just want you to be outside. I've got your bag packed and I'm coming in. I rented the Corvette and, you know, I'm going to come pick you up and I'm surprising you on where you're going. That's what like, right. It's what we got taught is that there's going to be a knight in shining armor and our savior. And he's going to be the one that provides and protects and cares for us. And the truth is we're just all in like human relationships and it's messy. And actually really, truly it is us that needs to do this for ourselves first. So let's talk about two pieces to it the communication with our partners, but also the internal experience of it. So yes, a hundred times yes, the more that we can just know our needs, which that's a challenge for a lot of people, just that, and then articulate them. Because deep down inside, what everybody longs for is to be seen, to be like known, like known at our depths, not known for our masks and not known for our superficial ways that we show up and like the ways that we like cook a meal or we this or that, like we want to be known for like who we are, you know, our hearts and our, our depth. Right. And yet often we don't reveal ourselves. So how can we be known if we're not showing ourselves to others? We can't. But why don't we show ourselves to others? Because so many times when we did show ourselves to others, we didn't get the response we wanted. And so you talk about the empowered woman. The empowered woman is the one that says, I need to be self-expressed, even in the face of disappointment, the risk of rejection, the risk of other people not receiving us the way we want to be received, because I'm self-expressing for me 
more than I'm self-expressing for anyone. I'm self-expressing because I don't want to die having not been a self-expressed, fully expressed being because deep down inside my soul is longing for that more than anything. We want to be received. Not everyone will be able to receive us. It's almost like we have to take the risk to put ourselves out there. So you did it through the birthday. I say even do it things like the most almost simple things, but like when it comes time to choose what movie you're watching and you tend to just be like, okay, you know what, whatever movie you want to watch, honey. And then we get on our phones and we're like only partially watching because it's this cop movie that we didn't really want to watch or whatever. You know what I'm just saying? That's an example in my house. Now, by the way, another thing is to immerse myself in his world sometimes, watch the cop movie and realize I actually like it. It was really fun. And when I engaged, I really enjoyed it. But to sometimes say, you know what? I actually saw this movie that I really do want to watch. And then he says, eh. And then you say, would you be willing to watch a movie that I want to watch tonight just once just to see? Or my therapist a long time ago said, never compromise. She was like, oh, wait, just try to find the one that you overlap on, even if it takes 10 minutes longer. You know, he brings up this one, you bring up that one. Nah. Okay. What about this one and this one? Nah. Oh, what about, oh yeah, I want to watch that one. Everybody agrees. Okay. We're going to watch this movie. Point being, you didn't silence yourself. You didn't abandon yourself. You brought up your opinion. Even with your kids, sometimes it's like, we'll just let our kids decide. Mm. And it's like, what if you brought your choice into something? When if it was time for dinner, when if we were going out to dinner and instead you said, what do you guys want to do? And they're like, I want to do this. You have four choices. And they're like, well, I want to go here. So then you all decide it together. You know, you decide, but your voice was heard. Not always listened to. It doesn't mean we always get our way, but we, we're not expressing ourselves because we're like the mommy that wants to make everybody else happy. I like that turn of phrase that you use there because... I don't know. There's just so many archetypes. It's like I I think women want to be empowered, but they don't want to do it in a way that seems nasty or like, you know, there it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think sometimes there's these negative portrayals of this selfish kind of nasty woman just being like, mm. and I really liked those words that you used. Would you be willing? I feel like that's more of an invitation. And oh, I yeah. feel like they probably weren't accidental. So tell us about that. Yeah. Well, would you be willing is disarming and it preserves the other person's agency because you're not, you're not trying to control them, but would you be willing actually does have a little nuance to it. Like we also can't use, would you be willing and then shame them or criticize them for saying no. So the idea with, would you be willing is that it's no strings attached. It's just, I'm, I'm speaking what I would like right now, but here's the thing. Let's just say that I ask my husband, like, would you be willing to hang up that picture for me? And then most of the time, our partner would probably say, yeah, I, I think a lot of times they would, but let's just say they didn't. Then we have to be willing to say, okay, and then be resourceful and figure out how we're going to do it. Maybe we hire somebody, maybe we do it, but not to go back and be like, oh, like he didn't do it for me. He never does anything for me because the challenge is that we're suffering so much from the stories that we have in our head that our husbands should do everything that we ask them to do. And that if they don't do it, that it's like, they, like, we don't want them to have agency. We kind of want them to be doing what we want. And yet at the same time, kind of this like flip side of it, 
we don't always ask for what we want. (laughs) So we're in this like funny place and we kind of feel stuck there. That's very good awareness. That'll give people something to think of and kind of understanding and honoring your partner's needs and wants and desire and wholeness as well. I want to go back because I know hindsight, the cliche hindsight is twenty twenty. but you talked about being kind of in that 39, 40-ish age where you knew something is missing and it felt murky, like you didn't know where to go to reclaim it. I'm wondering if you could go back to that time, what you wish you would have spent more or less energy focusing on or worrying about or not worrying about. I tend to believe that the journey we go on is the journey we need to go on. And so I don't spend a lot of time in my own personal regret over it or anything like that. But part of the reason why I created the program that I have, the whole Soul Way program, is because I wanted people to have a path when they meet that. And so I would say I wish that my therapist had more explicitly told me that this is an inner journey and that even though we were in counseling together, I wish I knew that that's what she was doing with us more explicitly because I still believed I was trying to change him and trying to fix him and that if he would do better, it was only when he started to do better that I would actually be happier. And so I spent a lot of years stuck in what I would say such a fixed mindset that I was not the problem and he was the problem. It's really a painful place to be. And so it's so disempowering. I felt empowered by being right, thinking I was right. I felt empowered that I, I hate to say this, it's almost embarrassing to say it, but like I felt empowered that in some way I could look at him as the perpetrator in some ways in my life. And then I was the victim, which is really interesting because I didn't really, I wouldn't have used that language at the time. I was like, I'm the strong one. I'm the one that gets everything done. I'm the one that does everything around here. I'm the one that you can count on. And I feel like that made me feel strong and made me feel like I was empowered, but I was so disempowered by waiting around instead of taking responsibility for my own inner experience or realizing that I can't change him or even my circumstances as quickly (laughs) because we can, it does. I do believe we do change. Things shift when we shift as if I come inside and I use all of that as information rather than, you know, blame and criticism and staying, my orientation staying out there all the time. Once I brought my orientation internally And I took responsibility for my responses to other people when I understood what being triggered meant, when I understood what shadows were. Once I understood that I was projecting my stuff onto other people, that's when I became truly empowered. So I just, I guess I wish that I knew that earlier, but I couldn't have known it any earlier. It's a lot more prevalent in the world right now to talk about this. But even for me, that was almost 15 years ago that I started to be mad at my husband this way. And honestly, they weren't, people weren't talking about it as much. I'm glad they are now. I feel like you used a few terms that it's like people know what they mean, but I just feel like sometimes they kind of also maybe don't. (laughs) 
exactly. And uh, you've talked pretty openly about how you had this moment of clarity of just understanding the concept of projection and seeing it in yourself. And I feel like that's very tied to what you were just articulating. Can you share that? Yeah. Well, so the simplest way to describe what projection is, is like, it's the idea of that. It's no different than looking at your face in a mirror. You know, you look at your face and other than on a Zoom call or in a mirror, you really cannot see your nose. You can't see like what your face, you can't see your eyes, right? So you must see it in a reflection. So you project, right? Your image is projected onto a mirror, which reflects back to you. So you get to see yourself. Well, the same thing happens on our inner experience. We have stuff that's in our unconscious mind. You know, it's it's stuff that we can't know and see about ourselves. And we don't know what's in our unconscious mind. It drove me, drove me so crazy. It's like, I hated to realize I was oblivious. I hated to realize that there were things about me that other people could see in me that I couldn't see in me or that which is why I love projection so much because now I feel like, oh, I have like a good, I have like a trick to know things that are in my unconscious mind. So have you ever heard of like when people say like, you spot it, you got it, or like you point one finger out at other people and three are pointed back at you. Mm -hmm. That's the idea is that everything that I see in other people, it doesn't mean the other person's not doing it. And it doesn't mean we need to tolerate behaviors from other people. But if the thing that we see in another person ruffles our feathers and gets us like upset or emotionally triggered or causes us disturbance inside of us, most likely what it's showing is some part of us that I like to say we have a complicated relationship with. So it could be a part of us that's beautiful. It could be a golden shadow, like a part of us that's like a wonderful, amazing part. Like when you envy someone who is doing something really great. They're like this beautiful singer and you envy them. You might find out that you want to sing more. You know, you think envy's bad, but envy's just showing you something. It's like, it's like an aspiration in some ways. Like, I want that. Well, when you see an, a negative, so-called negative characteristic in another person, it might be something in you that you have a relationship with that you've rejected it. And it might be time just to look at it. It's just time to see these things. So like when I saw in my husband a long litany of things that I thought he did wrong, an example, the one that was the most pivotal for me was when I was saying that he was materialistic and I was like, just so judgmental about him being materialistic. And that was the one that really kind of woke me up and made me realize, oh my gosh, like my therapist helped me to see places where I could be materialistic or even places where I wanted to be more materialistic, but I wouldn't let myself be materialistic. Mm. So it doesn't mean like, um, it doesn't mean something that you see that's in another person that you are it. It doesn't mean you're it, like they're mean. And so I'm mean. It's not as simple as that. It's more like, what did you learn about meanness? How often were people mean to you where you had to be a victim of meanness? When do you sometimes get mean when someone pushes you up against the, you know, your edges? Do you ever get mean? It's not about saying you're going to become mean now and you're going to become this bad mean person if you open up your eyes to meanness as a characteristic of being a person. It's really this journey of what I would like to say is including truth that every human being has a wide spectrum 
of characteristics inside of them. And that we are not all good. We're a messy mixture of all of it. And when we say someone else does that bad thing, but I don't, I'm virtuous and I don't, we're living in denial. And when we live in denial, we're basically living not in truth. And living not in truth is painful. And it takes a lot of energy and effort to pretend that that doesn't exist inside of us. And Brene Brown says something, this is totally a botched version of it. Like we judge in another person what we do, but they do it just a little bit worse than us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're just <laughs> a little bit more that way than us. And by the way, the way that this happened for us is because of our childhood. It's in our childhood. It's in our conditioning. It's the way society is set up that basically tells us we need to be acceptable little beings and we need to be exactly what's not going to upset our parents and society. And so anything that we that our parents deemed bad, even if it might not be, it could be just you're silly and you're playful and you're giggly and you can't be silly, playful and giggly. Maybe in your 40s, you start to realize I'm actually a pretty silly, giggly, playful person and I want to be that way. But I got shamed for that when I was one. And we want to bring more of that into our lives. So shadow work and projection is not the scary thing people think it is. It's actually a liberating path of coming into truth and then choosing how we want to be in the world. Choosing rather than it coming out sideways in these little secret ways, right? Yes. I feel like Debbie Ford was one of my first, like when I was in my 20s, like one of my first introductions to shadow work. And it always stuck with me. She said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and call it fate. And it's hard. People don't want, I I really, really just want to say, I love that more complex, rich explanation you gave because yeah, I, I feel like it's oversimplistic to say that's inside of you when you see it and you point it out. And so just, you know, articulating that is super helpful. But I, I do feel like Shadow work is another word that you use a lot. And I know we're coming up against time, but I just want to give you a chance to say one more time or explain like knowing that it's not easy and that it can be painful and hard and unsimple to kind of look at our shadows. What is your encouragement for women to just bite the bullet? Do you think everyone has shadows? Can everyone benefit from this work? Like, where do you fall there? There's so much to say. First, I just want to say one thing. I want to echo something you said before Before I enter this space. The work that we're doing here, this inner work, it's not only good for our relationships because it truly opens us up to be able to be more humble and more emotionally available and compassionate. For the level of compassion that I think every person who's listening probably has for other people, imagine that. And you're also having it for yourself. So imagine the amount of compassion you have the power to have when you're compassionate to yourself and you're compassionate to other people. It's just like off the charts. And it's also in a time where we have so, we have such a clear picture on the public stage that we are not yet peaceful beings. Imagine if you can create more peace in your heart, how much that ripples out to the world. So this is activism, in my opinion. So when you ask the question of like how to do it, I, I actually talk about gentle shadow work and I have a free, a free little tool kit that I'm happy to share with your audience if, if you want to on shadow work. And it's a kind of a, a warmer entrance to it. 
You asked the question if I think that everybody has shadows. I would say it can't imagine that they don't. The reason why we have shadows is because we have generation after generation of generation of ways that we have been told that we cannot be and ways that we've experienced trauma and we've had rejection. In order to survive, you kind of almost have to put stuff into your unconscious mind because if your unconscious mind just flooded and you were just thinking everything, oh, I think we'd be really overwhelmed. Your brain is really smart that it does what it does and it only allows us to meet the unconscious mind a drip at a time so that we can integrate it and then become more whole. So that's what I want us to imagine though, is that unconscious mind is, the conscious mind is what we know and the unconscious mind is what we don't know. And what we don't know is actually causing us a lot of suffering. So as we keep bringing bits of our unconscious mind into our conscious mind, we become more whole. We become aware of all of who we are, the truth of who we are, the depth of our being. So the more that we become aware of that, we don't become that. We become more empowered to not become it. We actually become more empowered than ever to choose how we show up. So the way that I invite people to do this is, um, especially because I believe most of your audience has children, even if not, almost everybody knows what it's like to be an aunt or, you know, to see a cute little baby or we once were a baby. And I like to invite people to look at the shadow from a perspective of like what you would want for a child, how you would want to treat a child. So for me, one of the things that felt important raising my children was that they hold on to themselves. It doesn't mean I didn't condition my children. We all do. Everyone conditions their children. Every child learns what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, even if we never use words that give them the impression that like you were, you never explicitly tell them. Our brains are so good at knowing how not to upset mommy and daddy and how to, you know, that we cut off parts of ourselves. So my children a hundred percent have shadows. There's no question in my mind. <laughs> I know that. But like, what would, what's the most beautiful thing is that if we can preserve their connection to themselves. So when my kids would say things that were mean, I would oftentimes honor the impulse to be mean. I would say, listen, totally understand why you feel like you want to be mean right now. And we can't throw a toy at them. <laughs> There's a way of acting, even if you have the feeling, you know, you can feel that way, but you don't necessarily have to act it out. Well, one of the things is most of us can honor and acknowledge the feelings that are mean, disrespectful or whatever. And then we just act out differently. Well, what about when we feel that way? If we could just acknowledge, oh, of course you feel like being mean right now. That person really upset you. They offended you. Imagine if we could talk to ourselves that way. So how could we meet the shadow parts of ourselves with more compassion? Just honoring only the impulse. That person totally betrayed you. Of course you're going to feel like you want to say mean things to them right now. That doesn't make you bad. It doesn't make you wrong. That's just called being a human. Of course you had that reaction. You know, so how do we just honor and hold anything without needing to make it wrong? Because what we'll usually do is then make ourselves wrong and bad for having mean thoughts or being mad at our husband or whatever it is. Same when it comes to when we see it in another person. If we see in another person that they're doing something and then we kind of like some part of us kind of goes, oh, I do that sometimes too. You know, I think just like disrespect. A lot of times parents will be judgmental of someone like that my friend she was just so disrespectful to me or that person was so disrespectful <laughs> but then we will disrespect our children 
And we deep down know we will disrespect them sometimes, just like whether it's just that we, they said something to us and we just sort of like, I don't have time for that right now. I got to do this, you know, or whatever. It's not meant to be. We're not trying to be jerks doing it on purpose, but sometimes we are. And inside it makes this little tiny feeling inside of like, I sometimes do that too, but we shove it down because we don't want to feel it. What if instead we put our hand on our heart? And that's my number one tool that I'm going to give away to everybody. Put your hand on your heart and you just say, "Mm." sometimes it's hard to be as perfect as we want to be. It's hard. I know sometimes I can be a little disrespectful too. Imagine if you just acknowledged to yourself, it's hard to be a human. It's hard to do it right all the time. And I want to do it right, but I miss the mark too. So it's some way that we start to actually open up a dialogue with ourselves of self-compassion. And it's not what you think. What our parents taught us was that if I allow space for disrespect, it's going to grow. But what's disrespect if you really think about it? Disrespect in a child is usually them having a different opinion than us. Well, as a child, you got taught that, well, what if instead they just said, tell me what, tell me what you're thinking, what's going on? What's your opinion? What are your thoughts? You know, I didn't like the way that your tone came out on that, but, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, so then we start to realize that when we give ourselves space for disrespect, disrespect is just usually some version of us having a different opinion than the other person. You know, like I don't have a child needs us. We don't have time. What do we do instead of saying, oh, honey, you need me and I don't have time. What are we going to do about this? We say, I don't have time for this. But really, it's the honoring of like, oh, they had a need and I have a need and they're in contradiction to each other. And I don't let them have their need because you know, I don't even know how to deal with this situation. If we come in and we give space for those feelings that we, where we've disrespected, we start to say, well, what was my underlying need? What was I feeling in that moment? And that's the journey. And the tool is right hand is, I say, our adult self and our heart is our inner child. And this is the beginning of reparenting ourselves. The shadow parts are just parts of us that never got hurt as a child. And that's how much of the connection gets created is because we start to build this connection internally. And man, when we have a connection internally, we are unstoppable. We are unstoppable. That's a beautiful, beautiful place to leave us. Thank you so much for giving us that special practice. Because this is a lot to think about. And I encourage people to go read and research and follow you and learn more. But I also believe in giving women something that they can do today to start to move that needle. So thank you for that. I always end my interviews by inviting guests to share a question. So in the area of everything we've covered from believing that midlife can be an opportunity to exploring shadow work or anything that might bring us to a a sense of fuller expression What's one question women could be asking themselves more? The one that comes up for me is something like, where am I waiting for permission? And where can I give that permission to myself? Deb, we covered so much beautiful territory. I'm really excited to share this out. I know my community will want to follow you and learn more. So where can we find you, please? Well, I think the best place to find me would always be just at my website, which is thewholesoulway.com. 
And up in the right-hand corner, there is a little link that says free stuff. And you can go in there and get that shadow work toolkit. And yeah, and then I'm on most of the social media platforms as well under Deb Blum. Okay, wonderful. This was so wonderful to connect. Thank you for your time. So nice. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at Whitney Woman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.